fun. We're going to go for a joyride. You've just made a wrong turn heading south onto strange highways. Enter death's waiting room, if you dare. And welcome to Strange Highways. I am Paul, and uh, somewhere in the distance making a large pot of soup is Terry. Yes, this is me. I'm here. I, I'm actually, I'm not making soup. Oh, okay. Oh, I thought you're making that's soup, a, or is it? Oh alarm? no, that's a problem. I'm going to be really hungry tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I thought maybe you'd be making some soup that you could maybe rub on your wounds later. Which that's not actually what happens in this episode, but that's what it looks like. And I just, uh, yeah. I just have potatoes and a and a big pot of water that's it that's all it really is that, you know hey that's that's most i mean you know we live in northeast ohio that's most that's most cooking that that makes sense so uh and we're, we're joined uh, on this episode by uh by a friend of the show who had been on previously talking about nightmare at twenty thousand feet uh mr richard welcome back to the show thank you i'm the uh creepy guy coming in off screen to point at terry through the window and uh watch him as he's making his pretend soup yeah, could you just be like, this poor son of a bitch is just eating soup and water. <laughs> Something bad will happen to them. As I wear a shirt and tie, I'm out. Yes. Right? <laughs> yeah, I'm not even going to offer him a smoke. That's, no, right? That's the kind of cat that I am. Yeah. So uh, I hope you guys enjoyed our conversation about uh, uh, Tales from the Dark Side, uh, the the pilot episode, Trick or Treat. Uh, but now, uh, before we get back to season five of The Twilight Zone, which I should state that the whole our show is watching the twilight zone uh, sequentially the original series, except we're breaking the rules tonight. This is something that I've been talking about for quite a bit. Um, and it feels very appropriate before we get to the second half of season five and round out the rest of the series. Um, there's been something that's been kind of bugging me for quite a while. And it's that when we originally covered, um, season two, episode 15, the invaders, I, um, being the guy who presses the buttons and does the things, um, I messed up the audio for that episode and the conversation that we had had at the time was quite wonderful, but it is unlistenable in terms of how I feel about the audio. And since I'm a perfectionist, um, sometimes, I mean, I don't know, like white claws and whatever says I'm perfectionist. I don't know, but I wanted to revisit this episode because I feel like, um, in terms of the collection of the entire series, I would feel remiss not revisiting the invaders and actually giving it like, um, a good conversation that doesn't drive people batty with poor audio. So I'm putting that on me and um, I have not had this conversation um, with Terry or Richard. And I figure if we're going to do this, let's bring in some people that I've not had a conversation with about this episode. And I think this will be a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to this. Um, not to tip my hand too much. This is a high point of the series for me. Um, and I, I don't know. Have you guys seen this episode previous to this discussion? I I have never seen this episode, but I know some information about it that has connections to other things that I absolutely adore. So when I just kind of glanced at the synopsis of this, I was like, I am ready to roll on this. I can't wait to dive into this discussion. Like I was so excited. Um, I I I I was really excited to see what Richard's uh, view on this was as well. Yeah, this is one that I actually saw um, a few years ago. I, I kind of made it a point to, whenever I discovered that the Twilight Zone was on 
I think it was on Netflix first or whichever streaming service it was on. I, I made it a point to go through and kind of check the box on all the Matheson episodes mm-hmm. because not long before that I was in a big Matheson reading phase. So I thought, oh, okay, you know, he wrote a bunch of Twilight Zone scripts or stories and whatever else or that were adapted. So I kind of went through each one and Invasion was one. And um, so I'll, I'll make a little confession about this episode. I don't know right now or a little later, but no, let's uh, confess we're, we're in the mood. Okay. Yeah. 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 Whenever I first saw the this episode, yeah, do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Um, when I first saw this, I was I was pretty much a solid meh on it. Okay. But um, going through the deeper dive and, and watching it again and just kind of, let's put it this way, I, I appreciate it more just due to having watched um, other episodes of The Twilight Zone. I've been catching up with, on season five as you guys have been going along. And, um, you know, and especially when set up against those ones and against, you know, some of the spectacular episodes written by a certain Earl Hamner. I, um, I was able to, you know, kind of put myself in the time that this was made and it was done production values and monies and, you know, what limited budgets and special effects, et cetera. So, but, uh, but yeah, then when I put it against that and, and saw this kind of in a bigger picture of things, I was like, Oh my God, this is a, a tip my hand. This is a gem. This is just gold yeah and there's a lot here we'll get into and it's just um and it's like it's hard to it's unfair to judge what came after before right like in terms of like oh we're watching season five now we'll go back to season two and it's like i I get that however with that being said um there was um a more of a steady hand in terms of the behind the scenes on this uh because like you know there was a little bit more money there was just and certainly like well even though he didn't write this like there was, you could get the idea of like, there was a little bit more excitement and also he was a little bit more hands-on with this in terms of the production. So there's, I'll always say this is something I've said repeatedly talking about our journey through the twilight zone is that like, like yourself, Richard, we said that you kind of go back through and check mark the maths and stuff. You know, he's one of the more prolific writers in the twilight zone, but ultimately if you look at the number of scripts, like, you know, he, he didn't do that many out of the 130 versus like, you know, Hamner and, um, <laughs> Oh, uh, uh, the gentleman, the other guy, I always like uh, Beaumont. Beaumont. Why do I always fail on him? But anyway, Beaumont or George Clayton Johnson, like they all contributed. Right. And they all did a lot, but it's like, you look at it and you're like, Oh, I thought Matheson wrote a lot more and he didn't. Um, and, and, and again, a lot, some of the stuff too, was also stories written by him that Sterling thing, like actually turned into scripts later. And this is one that's actually right. one of his scripts. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, so I think, I think it's important to go back to whenever, um, you know, Buck Houghton was the producer, uh, cause Buck Houghton left the show after season three because it had been, um, in effect, uh, canceled. And so he didn't know what was going on. Sterling went on to take a teaching job. Uh, there was like a bit of a holding pattern. And so Houghton's like, I can't do this. So then it became a, like a rotating series of producers. Um, you could, I don't know. I just feel like um, sometimes there's just these moments where you get like the right pieces, parts, and the, the output's a lot more confident. Right. And I think this mm-hmm. is one that this is almost kind of like, and, and for Terry, since it's your first time watching this, I think this is kind of one of those ones that will spark like the, the love of the twilight zone. Um, and I think this is what, you know, people would see and be like, Oh, well this is like, for me, it's a high point. I'm what I, like I said, I'm not going to lie. Uh, I, this is one of my favorite episodes of season two and of the series, but I think this is what people are like. The twilight zone's amazing. It's like point to this. And, but then they also have never seen black leather jackets. 
You know, like, I don't know. Like it's, I think it's worthy of revisiting the show, what the show is capable of doing. And also, I mean, but to be fair though, um, we just recently watched the season five episode. Uh, was it number 12 looks just like you. That was a really good episode as well. Right. And I felt like that could have belonged in the first three seasons, like alongside any of this. So I don't know, I guess I'm a little bit rambling, but I just, it's one of those things where I love the series so much that I think people can put rose colored glasses on, but then also, um, be easily dismissive of it's just, it's a weird, it's a weird place I'm at, especially you're visiting this. But anyway, um, the, before, did you guys have any other, like, uh, like, gr- like beginning thoughts before we get into actual day and date? And then we'll talk about the, the, this expansive cast. No, I'm just, the, the only thing I would add is that I'm glad that we're doing this and maybe this is something we might do in the future too, where we come back around and we revisit some of these like high points of the twilight zone, because I think there's a lot to say about, some of these episodes that, you know, like maybe they impacted some of our listeners in different ways and we could bring them on and, you know, maybe, yeah. you know, it's like, so we, we can have these kinds of conversations which we're about to have with Richard, who I know is a really big Matheson fan. So yes. this is going to be really exciting. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, we had you on for Terror 20,000 feet, which is the, the season five episode, which was spectacular. So, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so Terry, what you're saying is that before we end season five, we're going to revisit black leather jackets and talk about it again. Is that what we're gonna <laughs> Well, not that soon. Maybe. Oh, maybe I'll, <laughs> I'll come on and say some things about black leather jackets. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, all right. So this, uh, this is season two, episode 15. I just got to tell you after taking notes after a number of years, like my, my hands can't type out numbers and episodes like right anymore. I'm like, what, what season is this? Um, air date was, uh, January 27th, 1961. Number one song wonderland by night by Bert Kampfert. It's an instrumental piece. It's, it's very dreamy and it feels like something that'd be playing along a boardwalk. Like, uh, it's, it's a wonderful little piece. Um, number one film is 101 Dalmatians. Never heard of it. Um, no. Uh, so, uh, it's just funny. Cause like, I know recently we've been running into sword in the stone. Like this is, you know, that's a big, it's a big film. Uh, so in terms of day and date, uh, I have a couple things here. Um, so the 24th, so it was, uh, a couple days before this episode aired a B-52 uh, Stratofortress with two Mark 39 hydrogen bombs crashed on a farm uh, in Fargo. Uh, was it? Uh, was it? Let's see here. No, sorry. Goldsboro, North Carolina. Uh, three USA, uh, United States Air Force officers were killed. Uh, one of the bombs went partially through its army sequence as five of its six safety switches failed. The one remaining switch prevented a 24 megaton uh nuclear explosion from happening and that would have wiped North Carolina off the face of the earth. Think about that for a second. Yeah. And that would it's, suck. Yeah, <laughs> would suck. <laughs> I didn't even know that kind of technology existed to, to just, make sure it wouldn't go off. How do you feel like the people that come up? Like, I mean, I'm, there, yeah, obviously there's lives lost and that's terrible, but like the, like you're like, okay, that one bomb's okay. Okay. It's fine. It's like, okay. It's zero of six. And you go over like five of six. And you're like, don't you just automatically wet yourself right there, like out of t- pure terror and to find out what was the sixth switch? Was it like, was it just like the chicken inside that didn't like peck the right thing? I don't know. Anyway. Um, cause I, that's a joke. Did you know in World War II, they experiment with pigeons actually, uh, being like, uh, used for driving missiles to targets. Cause they actually had them peck at a target and a missile 
Like that's actually a thing that happened. So I feel like there's Get a chicken. The hell out of there's here. There's a pigeon. No, no, look it up. They actually found a targeting thing because they actually found a way to keep them like targeting, hitting the center of like this target inside the missile being dropped or not missile, the bomb to keep it navigating. And then by the time they got it perfected, they'd figured out a better way of doing it, but they had trained pigeons uh, or pigeons or chickens to actually guide bombs in World War II. This sounds like something from the Tiny Tunes. I swear to God, you're making this stop. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so that, that so then also on the 26th, so the, the day before this aired, Wayne Gretzky was born, um, who, to my knowledge, uh, has not triggered a large-scale explosion other than goals that have happened. Um, right. Yeah. And then also yeah. the same day, uh, Soviet submarine S-8, S-80 with a crew of 68 vanished in the uh, the Barents Sea. The wreckage of the S-80 was not discovered until more than seven years later. I don't think they made it. Yeah, it wasn't like uh, with a 30,000 fathom grave yeah, they, yeah. or whatever, or 30, 30 fathom grave. Where it's constant um, knocking. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Uh, so I do have a bit of history here too, especially considering like, a lot of the events that we've talked about in prior episodes um, had to deal with JFK. So on the 20th, uh, JFK took the oath of office as the 35th president of the United States. Uh, oh, so whatever happened to him? Yeah. yeah. We'll go to go back to some of our earlier <laughs> Go back to season we'll five. Out. We'll find out what happened. <laughs> uh, just Well, it's funny because the next episode we're going to cover season five was the episode that was supposed to air the week of the assassination, but then they delayed it. So that was me making a terrible joke. So, well, Hey everybody tuck in. It's not going to get any better over the course of the night. So, um, yeah, <laughs> it's, thank you, Richard. I appreciate that. I appreciate so, that. We're so the same. you think, yeah. <laughs> Terry and I got the wheels here. We're all right. Okay, We're great. Okay. So don't worry, folks. let's don't get worry. into this, uh, the cast and crew here. So Terry, if you don't mind, can I get into the, the, the first part and then we'll get it. I'll let you take the lead for the, for the, the, the cast. And I, I don't know. This is very uh, smaller list, right? So I just want to mention, this was directed by Douglas Hayes. Uh, he's one of my absolute favorite directors of The Twilight Zone. Uh, this, this He directed nine other episodes of the series. This was his last one, and it bums me out because I had mentioned previously during this podcast that like with Serling and, and producer Buck Houghton, who I felt like they were on the same wavelength and knew how to deliver, uh, Douglas Hayes felt like he just, I don't know, he always kind of got it. And I'll have some information later about him talking about this episode, but he had directed previous to this dust eye of the beholder, which is the famous uh, pig people episode, the howling man, which is a Beaumont story. That's great. Mm. Nervous man in a $4 room, the after hours with the mannequins, the chaser, which is one of my favorite episodes of season one elegy, another favorite episode of season one. And when the sky was opened, which was also math Matheson episode. So, I love this director and he went on to do like a number of things after this. Uh, and also Terry, just for your knowledge, he wrote one episode of Hawaiian eye. Um, but he went on to, to write and direct a lot. I kind of wish this was one of those guys they were able to bring back for later episodes. Cause I just feel like he always kind of got the twilight zone and it bums me out that this is the last time we got him because I feel like this was kind of like him and, uh, the director of photography, George T. Clemens. We'll talk more about him later. This is like a masterclass in like the Twilight Zone and how to shoot it. I agree with you totally. Like, I all cylinders were running on this one. Um, I, I think that, especially because of some of the episodes that you you've talked about, like this guy should have continued work through the the series and that. And I don't understand why that there wasn't that relationship that just kind of continued on. But he did do a little bit of 
night gallery later on. Yeah. So, well, I mean, like in season five, we ended up getting Richard Donner and we ended up getting some John Brom, which we like as well. He was a, a mainstay of the series, but man, I just, there's a lot here. It's like, could you imagine, like, I know Richard Donner came on for terror 20,000 feet. I wonder what Douglas Hayes would have done with that episode. You know, like it, just, it makes me wonder. The, the sus- suspense I think would have been built in a, a completely different manner, but also would have been, all, all gripping in a different way too. Like we're going to talk about that through this episode. I can see the connections here and maybe how we would have seen a little bit of a different product, but probably even been a little bit more scared. Um, but yeah, like I, well, you, you mentioned the chaser. I love the chaser as well. That's a terrific episode and it shows a different uh, side of his directing as well. Yeah. And elegy is the one where the, the three spacemen show up on uh, the, the planet where everybody's like frozen in place. And it's just, I don't know. He just like one of the, one of the notes I had in my books here was that he would choose his scripts upon the problems that were presented to him, meaning that he wanted challenges to overcome, which I think that's always better. Right. I mean, you might fail because and when the sky was opened is not the greatest episode, but it's still fun. Um, but whatever. Anyway, I, I love Douglas Hayes and, uh, yeah, and, and, and Richard, I don't know how many of those other episodes we've just talked about if you've seen some of those or not. Uh, I'm sure I have over time, but, um, offhand, I don't remember of them, but based on this episode though, it, it would definitely behoove me to go refresh my memory. Yeah, you should. I, the, the, this, it just, <laughs> I love this, uh, director. Um, so, mm-hmm. um, yeah. And so yeah, this is written, written by Richard Matheson. And I know, uh, this Richard, that's not Matheson has something to say about the other, the other Richard that is a Matheson. Uh, yes, yes. Well, I mean, uh, if you want, I can go through a laundry list of novels and yeah. <laughs> stories you may or may not have heard of. Uh, but, uh, I Am Legend, The Shrinking Man, that would be why you're filmed as The Incredible Shrinking Man, A Stir of Echoes, What Dreams May Come, of course, The Nightmare 20,000 Feet, Long Distance Call, or Sorry Right Number, uh, Little Girl Lost, Born of Man and Woman, Duel. But um, it, uh, he, he and... Uh, he and Rod Serling definitely had a good working relationship together. A, a book that I had and got for actually this particular episode in general, but it is, I'm definitely going to read through the whole thing. It's really cool. It's called uh, Richard Matheson's The Twilight Zone Scripts that were edited by a gentleman named Stanley Weader. If uh, you get a chance to see anything or read any interviews that he's done, he, he was a guy that just kind of rounded up horror authors and would do interviews with them both, in print format and in on uh, television. I think you can find some YouTube videos nice. of various authors he talked to. But um, in this particular collection, there's a little write-up of each of information prior to each script. But uh, at the beginning, there's an instance that between Matheson and Sterling that just showed what a really tight connection they eventually had. It's um, after the Twilight Zone was over, Matheson you know, of course, was still doing script work, and so was Rod Serling. And at the time, if you were given a script that was written by someone else and you were asked to do a rewrite on it, it wasn't, uh, according to the Writers Guild, it wasn't necessary for you to contact the other, the original writer and let them know that you were doing anything with it. And, um, which isn't the case today, but uh, at the time, Richard Matheson received a script uh, that had been originally written by Serling, and uh, he said, I felt uneasy about it and wrote him a letter explaining everything. And uh, he received a response back, which just shows you, number one, the, the kind of guy that Rod Serling is, 
especially like how appreciative he is of a, of working relationships that he had had in the past. But he, Serling's response was, you know, dear Dick, occasionally down the pike walks a guy with sensitivity and a decent regard for the feelings of his colleague. And that's you doing the walking, old friend. Your letter simply supported that which I've thought about you for low these many years, that you were 20 cuts above the average, certainly in talent, but most especially as a human being. It was gracious of you, Dick, to feel concerned about rewriting my script. It was uncommonly decent of you to take the time and trouble to indicate that concern via the letter. Have no further concerns. Just don't sweat this. We both know it happens all the time. We both know that sometimes it can serve an abrasive to a relationship. But I think you and I are old enough friends to know that it's not the kind of thing that will in any way hurt our relationship. I think we mutually respect each other too much to allow anything like this to render our friendship any damage. So go with God with a script. Do all and anything you can to improve, to change, or as you say, to start from scratch on it. I hope it gets you an Oscar and a million dollars. Both rewards couldn't accrue to a nicer guy, and I mean that. Warm regards, Rod. That's so, that's I, why I told Terry about the last episode we did from Tales from the Dark Side. I was like, just you know, I appreciate you're gonna you're gonna elevate this. And I said, I, I, word for word. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, yes, <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> no, Rod. No, like if 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 someone's if he's someone's done right by him, he will never forget them. And I, yeah. and in the books I've been reading about him, it's like, he always takes the time. Uh, and if, you know, even people provide criticism, like there, his, uh, his relationship with uh, Ray Bradbury is a little rocky, but it's like, they at least talk back and forth. And it was quite entertaining to say the least, but Bradbury wasn't a big Serling fan, but Serling was trying to accommodate Bradbury. Um, so yeah, like Matheson is like, the, like if you do a Mount Rushmore of, of the twilight zone of the original series, you know, it, it's him. It's, um, you know, uh, Beaumont, Beaumont. God damn it. <laughs> it's Beaumont. It's George Clayton Johnson and it's Serling. And then in Hamner, I don't know. It's like, looking he, at it. He's, <laughs> he's that other face. It's like, you know, he, he's like, um, an idiocracy, not idiocracy. Um, it's, um, all the multiplicity. He's the clone of the clone that isn't quite right. He's just hanging out with everybody. He's number five, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> I feel bad. I think Jerry, I think Jerry Goldsmith looking at the, uh, like being in that, that same line of the route, Mount Rushmore, Rushmore would be like, he belongs on there as well. You know, like he not necessarily a face of it or the writer, but his music definitely oh, yeah. was I mean, a huge influence. If you want to do like I, yeah, Bernard Herman, you got some other amazing music here too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I have a lot to say about Jerry Goldsmith's score for this. It is just so amazing. It's like sparse and creepy and. Uh, okay. Well, so here, Richard, but, here, here's the joke. I want to tell you that I keep getting reminded of repeatedly. So we're going to talk about Jerry Goldsmith here real quick. I inadvertently made a dumb mistake in one episode. I think it was the episode back I, there. I, I find that very hard to believe. Uh, I, yeah. And I don't know what it is. I flipped him for uh, John Williamson. Uh, John, John Williams. Sorry. And I was like, Williamson. yeah, I was like, I was like, oh, Jay Goldsmith, he would go do the Star Wars stuff. And I was like, I've never been forgiven of this and um anybody that remembers that anytime jerry goldsmith was brought up i have it's one of those things where it's like um like i when i was just reading about day and date and i said the word uh nuclear it's like i feel like I, i'm gonna trip over that word now anytime jerry goldsmith is brought up i'm just like don't do it don't do it don't mess it up do not mess it up um so yes yeah the music's by this is an original score by goldsmith which isn't always the case 
for the series where they use stock music from either an, another episode previously or, you know, or other stock music composed by, by them. Right. So, um, yeah, the score in this is great. So please speak to this. Oh yeah. I mean, uh, I, I have to say that I'm, I'm not sure how long the episode or how long between when the episodes were completed to when they were aired, but, um, I would bet any sum that Jerry Goldsmith either watched the movie psycho 20 times or had the soundtrack on his turntable and just listened to it over and over again because, and, and he's admitted that Bernard Herman is one of his influences. So ju- just hearing that, like you, you can hear echoes of it throughout the whole episode. And that is a very good thing because it, it is so effective throughout yeah. the entirety of the, the episode. No, it's good. And he also, uh, I just, I'm going to throw this out here and, and Terry, you, you've heard bits of this before, uh, his original score he did for back there that showed up in death ship, which we're also going to see a very familiar UFO show up in this episode. Like, um, <laughs> yeah, cause there's only one shape, I guess for UFOs. Um, <laughs> uh, no, the, the Jerry Goldsmith score for back there is haunting and amazing. And it shows up in death ship, which is a season four episode. So, uh, Terry, like Goldsmith, right? I mean, the Superman, uh, he did other things too. Like, I, I mean, that sounds dismissive. I just don't want to say something wrong now. So please, like, how did you feel about the music in this episode? Did wait a minute, a quick interruption. Did John Williams do Superman? No, it was Goldsmith, right? Was it? it was Goldsmith. Was it Goldsmith? Oh no! Did I mess up again? <laughs> let me let me do a quick check. Oh <laughs> no, chat. John Williams. God. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Here I'm gonna throw one. There's one. We'll do it live. What, I'm gonna F throw. It. I'm gonna throw one of these out there. Oh shut up, Paul. That's what's happening right now. <laughs> See, that's why. I don't go out on the ice because I'm just going to break and I'm going to collapse under it and just die. Oh no! I'm this is gonna... so th- this is this is the wonderful thing about one take, people. So yeah, you're you're seeing all the flaws. No, not <laughs> like, flaws. Absolutely. And a few failure. drinks later, yeah. so. all the flaws, all the John Goldsmiths. John Goldsmiths. Yeah, John Goldsmiths. To your uh, to answer your question, I like music. It's cool. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank <laughs> you. For, no matter uh, who does yeah. it. <laughs> Well, actually, I take that back. As long as uh, you know certain bands don't. Okay, do it. fine, um, fine. fine. Here. <laughs> wait, 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 no, no, no. Let me get this straight now. Um, what was it? he did some stuff for Rambo, Logan's Run, Planet of the Apes, uh, Poltergeist, Gremlins, Hoosiers, Total Recall, Air Force One, and The Mummy. All right, so great. But like, may we'll never speak of this again. I'm done with life. Please continue. Okay. Jerry Goldsmith. I can't believe I I fell on my keys twice. I can't believe that happened. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's, great. If it it wasn't, Paul, if it wasn't this scenario, it would be me misusing words. Uh, So, you know, like, things happen. Terry, can you at least appreciate that I laid out my apprehension of getting something wrong and then proceeded (laughs) to make the exact same wrong statement again? Do you, like, you understand that, right? Like, it's like I um I am the Earl Hamner Jr. of this conversation. Like that's yeah. all there is to it. So anyway. Wait, you you called yourself out before yeah. it was gonna happen. So it's yeah. all right. It's like, oh, that one time I fell in an open manhole. That's never gonna happen again. Oh look, there's an open manhole. <laughs> How did I end up down here? Yet again. Anyway, let's all right, let's just get into this cast because it's expansive. So Terry, who's in this cast? 
All right, so our cast consists of one Agnes Moorhead <laughs> as woman. Uh, she she was in some Playhouse ninety. Uh, she was in the Bat, which was with Vincent Price. Um, some night galleries. So she did the triple the triple. What is it? What do they call it? The hat. Hat trick. trick. The hat trick. She did the hat trick. So she was in all of uh, Rod Serling's uh, shows of all three Playhouse, Twilight, and night gallery so um and then she her biggest her biggest um credit is being on bewitched so well she would argue that that like so yeah uh she later in her life she was in dora uh, on bewitched right but she also got um was nominated for four academy awards six emmy awards um she was the first woman to host the oscar ceremony which i think is a pretty big deal growing <laughs> up her mother kind of indulged her they be an actor uh, in her imagination. She'd always ask her, who are you today, Agnes? Which I think is funny. Um, in 37, she joined Orson Welles, Mercury players. Uh, see the, it's easy when I write the notes out as opposed to me thinking of things. All right. Uh, in 39 started working for RKO. Um, and then she played the mother, uh, in citizen Kane of that citizen named Kane. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and then also she, uh, what was it? Um, during the the radio show suspense uh during the 946 episodes she was cast in more episodes than any other actor or actress um she was often introduced on the show as the first lady of suspense so she made her bones uh, doing a lot of radio um there is a um one of the episodes that she was in uh where she what was it um i actually didn't write down the title i should have she carries the entire episode just with herself. I think it's called like, sorry, wrong number, uh, where it's just her voice. Mm. And because of this, when we get to the script, we're about to talk about, it was Douglas Hayes. That was like, wouldn't it be great if we get this, this actress that is known for her ability to talk, to put her in a role when she doesn't say a thing at all. So it was like the, it's not stunt casting cause they were confident in her abilities, but it's like her claim to fame was that she like, she was in some movies, but she was mainly a radio worker, which uh, at the time was kind of viewed as like, like low rent. It was kind of like how there was that stigmatism until like, you know, the past 10 years of like, Oh, you're doing television. Now radio was kind of like that, like the bastard son to like movies for the longest time until TV started taking off. So she would work movies. She would do radio. Uh, and then, you know, so when she actually got into uh, Bewitched and she got started getting Emmy nominations, she's like, you know, I was in Citizen Kane, right? Which, you know, I'm sorry. Like, I would throw that out there first, too. You know, like, like, oh, congratulations. You're on the sitcom. It's like, yeah, I was also in the greatest film supposedly ever made. Oh, yeah, you were, weren't you? Can you wiggle your nose? But anyway. As um, her first uh, as her first acting credit, too. Yeah, right. Like, where do you go from there? Like, I'm, I'm going to guess, uh, I'm going to guess bewitched will not have the same air about it as citizen Kane. I don't know. Let's go <laughs> throw it out there. But anyway, Agnes Moorhead, it was versatile. Uh, it seems like she was ahead of the time for a lot of things she did. Cause she was able to do different voices and different characterizations. And with this, I also know, here's a little bit of a spoiler. Uh, she was actually classically trained by Marcel Marceau, uh, who is a famous French mime. Um, so when she was coming into this, uh, her and Hayes would work a lot with her physical reactions to this. So someone that made her bones doing radio has a oddly specific background in physical acting without, without saying a word. So you can't convince me that this isn't perfect casting for this episode. 
Yeah, this is one of the things that I thought helped me, even though I had already seen the episode, and, and actually before I watched the episode, I, I read through the script, and um, I said, I'll take it, I'm, I'm on, but um, no, they, they didn't ask. But uh, I, I, once I, like I said, even though I knew what was going to happen watching this, I was still caught up in the episode just because of Agnes Moorhead's performance. Just all her reactions to everything, didn't like all of her lines. There was there was just so many of them. I, I you know I had to <laughs> make sure I had them all. In my like, head, I got to write still. down. I got to write down the notes of. Mm, mm, yeah. Mm. Yes. Grunt, scream, <laughs> growl, whatever. Mm, yes. Potato. Mm. Anyway. <laughs> Fire bad. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh. No, but I think that like she's a very emotive, and it's like I think. Well, I mean, with Richard, I'll put this to you because I know you. You know, this is I'm going to pull. I'm going to pull the card that you weren't expecting tonight. So here's my wild draw for um, you. Have done some stage acting. I know it's very limited in terms of like college and things. Well, and yeah. and I, I was up there once wearing like uh, burlap pants and failing at dancing. Anyway, that's a whole other story for another day. <laughs> However. Yeah, there, you, I think you could appreciate, like, if you're as an actor, as a presenter, as getting to the audience, like, if you're not given a line, because sometimes I think I think dialogue can be a cheat of stating how somebody feels as opposed to showing it, right? And yes. yeah, I think at this time, um, especially, um, there were these actors that were. <laughs> like they were always kind of acting for like the cheap seat, cheap seats, right. As opposed to television, which is very intimate. I don't think mm -hmm. she's acting for the back row. I think she's acting for the person in the room. And I don't think that's always something that you get out of people on television at this point in time. That, that that's yeah. kind of how I feel about it. Yeah. Cause that, that was kind of, and you see this in early films and even still in early television, you can tell who were the vaudevillian actors and who were not. Because that it almost what you're talking about almost works to their detriment, because it's way over the top. Whereas the camera's right there in your face, and then, but in this episode, it's it's definitely necessary to to be able to emote that without using any language whatsoever. Just to, like I said, go through with her series of grunts and groans and whatever else. And, yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Anyway, so that's that's what I'd say about her so far, Terry. You got anything else? I mean, I know um, that we have like nobody else in this episode other than uh, Douglas Hayes, and we'll get to what he actually did later. No, that's pretty much it. And I think that um, there's a little bit that Richard gave away there for a second, and maybe we'll just like put that out there in the open. There are no lines uh, delivered by uh, by. <laughs> Agnes Moorhead in this, yeah. which is kind of, it's kind of sad because she, for the things I've seen of her, like she's a terrific actress and there are some production notes that we'll get into a little bit later about some of this, but yeah, that's w what we had in this episode and we're going to have a lot of fun with this no matter what. So yeah. I'm ready to go, man. All right. Mm -hmm. So let's just get into the Surly intro, which um, we'll talk about this too. This is one of the few episodes that starts right from the jump with him talking, um, but you know, cause nobody else does. <laughs> right. So let's just get into, let's get into Surling, uh walking in frame and um, you know, talking shit about people behind him. This is one of the out of the way places, the unvisited places, bleak, wasted, dying. This is a farmhouse, handmade, crude, a house without electricity or gas. A house untouched by progress. 
This is the woman who lives in the house. A woman who's been alone for many years. A strong, simple woman whose only problem up until this moment has been that of acquiring enough food to eat. A woman about to face terror, which is, even now, coming at her from the Twilight Zone. And, and that place is uh, Parma, Ohio. That's where she's at right now. No, just, just kidding. Um, yeah. No, I just, this was like this homestead. And then, I, I'm sorry, let me, I, I'll promise this to the listeners. Um, I've seen this. We've talked about this before on the episode. I'm oh, sorry, on the podcast. Uh, let, let, I'm going to let Terry and Richard get into this and let them tell the story because everyone's already heard me talk about this. And please, guys, this is a delight. I want to hear Terry's reactions and uh, Richard's reactions. That's why I have you on here. So please take it away. So I so we're opening up to the scene where, um, you know, Serling is he walks in the scene and he's actually right by the window of Agnes Moorhead. Again, she has no name. She is just woman in this. Um, and she's cooking. She's making some kind of soup, whatever. And, you know, she she's doing little things and chopping up veggies and that. There's nobody else in the house with her. And we we get little cues, little visual cues here. There's a knife that she's using that doesn't seem so sharp. And she puts it into the holder on the wall. And then she grabs a sharper knife, tests it out, and then she cuts what looks like potatoes and puts those on a plate. And again, visual cue, we get that place back onto the wall. And then yeah, that- from... Uh, go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say I liked some of the just the little, for lack of a better word, I, I had all quote marks the normal movements that she was making. Like she starts using the sharper knife and she kind of nods, like, "Oh, okay, this is great, cool." And then she just cuts it up, and then like any person would do, she pops a bite of potato or whatever various that is into her mouth. A tuber of unknown origin. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And then dumping it into what I called her witch's cauldron because <laughs> that looks like a big damn witch's cauldron. Yeah. Hammer, well, yeah, it looks like they were using some it, kind yeah. of like dry ice or something in there. Yeah. I've never yeah. cooked and had it make that kind of steam. I'm not going lie. I've recently I've tried. I've, I've, recently I've used incantations, up. but it just doesn't work. I've messed up an air fryer where my kitchen has gotten all smoky, but that's completely different, you know? So um, not, not, a, not a cauldron though. Damn. <laughs> so there, there really isn't that much of music or anything going on now. Uh, she dumps the veggies into her pot, and it's at that moment that we hear this subtle sound kind of start emanating and getting louder and louder, and it gets to a deafening point to her character that she starts like holding the sides of her head, and I think that's actually the sound that you used um, to intro the the episode, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden there's a crash. Um, and then now she, once she regains kind of like a composure and realizes, all right, everything's okay. What does she do from this point, Richard? She uh, actually, uh, once the dust literally settles, she actually uh, kind of goes and well, stands around and stares up at her ladder and, and climbs up to the roof of the house itself through the uh, little trap door. And uh, after grabbing a, a little lantern that she has, she goes up and checks out the scene and uh, she finds what looks to be a 
children-sized flying saucer. <laughs> so yeah, though, so like this is the Barbie Playhouse version of like what a saucer would be. And I'm telling you right now, this is like the most kick-ass thing. If I would have had this when I was a kid, forget Castle Grayskull. Like this is a thing I would have wanted. Um, and like I did yeah, not is... expect this at all. Yeah, it looks about uh, it, it probably about double the size of the uh, the middle Millennium Falcon toy <laughs> that we had back yeah. in the day. Yeah, so. I, just, I, I wrote my notes. I was like, you know, that'd be a drone now, right? Like you just see a drone on top of a house. Yeah, like, drone would be. <laughs> it reminds this me. is the drone I would want, though. Yeah. Like, where is which are they selling this at Best Buy? Like, I want to get this one because I want to scare the shit out of people. There, there's a, a <laughs> alien invasion. First COVID, <laughs> now alien invasion. It's going down. There, there, there's a video I'll need to post on the, on the Strange Highways page of this kid who's excited to get like this inflatable. It looks like a big foil disc that he throws up in the air. It's like. And, uh, and his grandfather's filming it and the kid's like excited. It looks like a UFO and it, it does a swoop and it flips and it, it immediately flies into the sewer by him to his left and it goes pure joy to utter sadness. That's what this looks like. And it's one of the greatest videos ever. So yes, I, I love that. She is like, I was just making potatoes, like uh, whatever it was, a dry ice. I'm going to go upstairs. What's going on here? You know, also kind of point out that there's some like decently long shots, which I know for television at this time, especially since they shot this on film. And this is one to mention George T. Clemens again. We'll get more into this in a little bit. Like when we get Rod coming into the, the sequence and him, you know, shitting all over her behind, behind him and like this poor woman. And like, and as Richard said earlier, didn't even offer a smoke. Um, like she should have cut part of the potato offered to him. It'd have been amazing if he would have like ate a piece of it or gave her a drag off cigarette. That would have been an amazing intro. Um, Dude, she was token off that hydro bong that she was making her soup in. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Um, but there's some like that, that the camera pushed in and followed. Like there's, as you guys watch the episode, I'm sure we'll talk about this more in a minute. There's some prolonged extended shots of action of her walking through her house that I adore. And with her going under the table and then walk, like climbing up the steps, going to the UFO, like that was all one shot. That's yeah, really there's cool. not, there's not a lot of hard cuts. You're right. I didn't yeah. really think of that until just now when you said yeah. that, it's like, yeah, they, they settle in one scene, just kind of doing pans or whatever. Up until she's on the roof. Yeah. Well, cause like, um, like Hayes made it a point to like, keep Morehead is like, she is the focus. Right. And he even said later that he may have turned in like nine strips of film for this episode. Like it, it doesn't surprise me, especially when we get to the second half of this. So yeah, there's some great shots here and I absolutely adore this kind of, uh, filming. Like there's more of a like gorilla style ver- version of like this, Versus a lot of other filming where it's like they have cut scenes and that they want to use the lighting for what it's worth. They want to use the scenery for what it's worth. And I, there are very intimate moments with this character trying to figure out what the hell is going on, looking around her place and that like, I want to be in tuned with her. That is real horror. Like I understand this character. Let me journey through the, like the, the scene with her and find out what the hell she's finding out at that exact moment. This is the way to achieve it. I think. Yeah, definitely. It's like, you're following along almost like a, almost like a first person type narrative, but not quite. 
I guess. Third person omniscient, maybe that's what I'm looking for. I, I don't know. Maybe. But, I don't know. I, but but uh, that's where we go to the commercial yeah. break, right? Like she goes up and sees the UFO. Or I mean, you we all know it's a UFO because we just we grew up with like seeing discs, right? Like this, like that's that's we expect Gort to come out, right? Or whatever his name is. They show yes. up at one point, right? Yeah, it's Gort. Like mini Gort to show up, right? Um, but then like her reaction, which is rightful, you're like, what is this thing? And then like, you know, you hear the noises that's coming out. Like I'd be worried about it too. Like, um, and also I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be against her notion of like, like how like she just got to touch it and it makes a noise. It's like, yeah, maybe not touch the big silver thing on top of your house now. And she, she finds out quickly that there's probably another reason why she wouldn't want to touch the big silver thing on top of her house either, because all of a sudden after these weird noises and that we hear the lowering of a platform, like a, a little launching pad, whatever, like staircase, I guess you would think it is. Um, and so she looks and she has a view from underneath and she sees this thing lower down and all of a sudden a shadowy character start to like descend. And so she hides a little bit closer to this little hatchway to her house. And all of a sudden it comes up on her and makes, I don't know, some kind of gesture that obviously scares the crap out of her. And she, this is the dumbest thing. All right. She hits, (laughs) she hits the little son of a bitch into her place. She kicks it (laughs) into her place. I'm like, all right, like here's a character that she doesn't trust. She thinks might hurt her. Get in my house. <laughs> I wish I wish you could see my notes because I wrote here. I, I would kick that son of a bitch down the hatch too is what I wrote in my notes. So um, I, I, that's not survival one one there, man. <laughs> I, I'm not saying yeah. it's rational. I'm just saying that's what would have happened. Like, you know. And uh, not not for nothing. I think uh, these little uh, these little uh, these little saucer dudes are. I'm just saying they're a little portly. Um, <laughs> Someone, someone didn't, someone didn't uh, make use of the poop room while they were uh, <laughs> coming into wherever. To, to use, it comes uh, full circle. Oh. Yeah, to use a phrase from an earlier episode of you guys, uh, oh. just to share with folks good, good call out, out there that I am an ardent listener. Good call out for the poop room. I appreciate yes, that. Yes. Yeah. Um, you yes. Know. These are. That's why they're so angry. They're very constipated. Uh, <laughs> oh God. Yeah. No. Uh, so, yeah. Please continue. I so yeah, like, uh, and I I hate that we just skip past the fact of what these little dudes look by look like. They look like little like soccer balls. Like that's what they they are. They're very tiny. Actually, probably like more the size of a softball. They are easily like kickable, obviously, because she kicked it down to the little porthole there to her home, and like they have little what looks like weapons, but. They're tiny, they're portly, and they're kind of cute. I like them. I don't know. (laughs) I don't appreciate you guys are body shaming these guys. I don't like that at all. Shut up. Um, (laughs) (laughs) This is... is, (laughs) Here's a little instance where I'll go back to, to the... Actually, I'll go to the script where... There aren't too many differences in the script, and even in the uh, even in the little write up prior or before the script proper starts, that the um, directors and whatever really didn't change a lot of Matheson's scripts that he had turned in. But um, the the one of the little things they did in this is that uh, the the script itself intentionally doesn't go into much description about these little dudes, and, and Matheson didn't care much for the look of them. Whenever they did, he. 
like he he says that um in the script itself the her light is her lamp is extinguished almost as soon as she sees the spaceship because she's startled by it. it's like oh shit and she drops her her uh, little lantern so she's not really able to see them and it, it says here quote um Whenever the little dude comes out, because right now he just has some little rinky-dink space laser. But in the story, not only was he carrying uh, some sort of weapon, he also had a flashlight. So having this flashlight in her face kind of prevented her from mm-hmm. seeing it. Like the, from the script, it says the light of his hand torch obscures all but his general shape. We do not Which is somewhat now... Sorry. Yeah, it says we do not now, nor do we ever see his features. Yeah, which I don't know, like so. Which, yeah, I mean that you, you kind of have to for a visual medium like this. So I, th- I think Matheson's short storytelling kind of crept in a little bit, where it's like, okay, I get it, but on the other hand, yeah, I could. We like, get paid at least poorly sport space. Yeah, so. No, like so, like um. Douglas Hayes wanted something for uh, Agnes Moorhead to interact with, right? So, because he right. talks about, and this is, I mean, stepping on the ups a little bit, he talks about how they could have done like uh, shooting things on like plates and some process shots or whatever. He's like, nah. He's like, he wanted things to stay in front of her. And so he actually consulted with William Tuttle, who was like a very famous, um, like a special effects artist who's done, he did the pig people and I, the beholder. Uh, uh, he okay. did, um, I want to believe he did the, the, the real time, uh, red green shift of um, all the gentlemen in long live Walter Jameson, which that's uh Oh, that's the asshole uh, guy from um, UHF. That was the owner of the TV station. Um, uh, okay. That was taunting. What, I forget his name now, but there's a bit in that where since they're shooting on black and white, they did his face, his face makeup in red and green, and they would do like a red and green light shift. So that way they could kind of show him aging in real time on the screen. It's crazy. It's really cool effect. Tuttle knows okay. his stuff. And so yeah. Tuttle came up with this design and then, uh, then Hayes actually was like, yeah, I'm going to cut them open and put my fingers in them and walk them around like puppets. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, where, where, how to, to, to not give away the end of the story. Like, I don't know how she do this right now without giving a carte blanche to your only actor on, on screen. Right. So right. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, Terry, yeah, 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 sorry, please. You guys continue. I, I'm stepping on everything. My well, promise is gonna- broken. Sorry. Continue. I, I was gonna. I was gonna say that I actually like that they made that choice that she is on scene with these characters and interacting with them. Like that seems to be more genuine, and I don't feel like there's any scenes that are forced here. It like I mean, especially for a lot of the films that I have enjoyed through throughout the years, like through the seventies and eighties, and like low budget as all get out. Like as much as this is low budget it feels genuine because of her reactions because she sees this right in front of her. And that's, that, that's something more that I appreciate as a viewer. Right. And this kind of speaks earlier to what I was talking about when, when I saw this for the first time, I was like, man, okay, whatever. But, and coming back to it now, I'm like, okay, I, I see why they had to do what they did. And obviously this was, you know, 1961. So it, it wasn't like they were going to have, some crazy CGI little space dudes. Now is, you know, they, they they worked with what they had and I thought it was effective too. watching it this time around. So plus it, it also helps with the constant or not constant, but the long shots that they were doing as opposed to 
going back and forth from what could be, you know, quote unquote, better looking space dude. Whereas, <laughs> you know, and then switching back to her, whereas you can have just one long shot of her seeing whatever's right there in front of her. Yeah. We didn't need the tiny ashes from uh, um army of darkness running around, uh, around the taller ash. We didn't need that. Um, What's that? The, the Bruce Campbell. Don't the tiny Bruce even Campbell. say that lies. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I just, I don't know. Like the idea that they have like little tight Christmas lights and they're launching them at her and like they're firing them off and she's <laughs> upset and she, you know, kicks them down and, and whatever. Right. So, um, but this is when we get into like, I think the really interesting part of this, because this becomes like a home invasion sequence, right? Like, and it becomes like a lot of her realizing there's like two of these little dudes, maybe more, uh, in her house because, you know, she kicked one of them down. Right. I uh, now it becomes the whole thing of her stalking around, trying to like figure out what's going on. And we get some other details here too. So I'm going to put it to you, Terry. Like what other details do we get during this that she doesn't say anything about? All right. So there is another little guy that she appears after she kicks the other one down into her home out of like out of nowhere. And he starts making these gestures and it has a little light, but whatever it's doing, it actually is physically hurting her because she's in a little bit of uh, pain, anguish, and she kicks that guy, or actually she throws her, her lantern at him. Yeah. And she a, knocks him off like a 10 pin and bowl. Yeah, I was about to say, yeah, she, I, she, I, got, I she picked up the spare Good right shot. there. Amazing yes. spare, <laughs> yeah. So she, when she goes down back into her home, she she searches around and like looks at her hands and like all of a sudden she's seeing these, these lesions or marks of some sort. Like they kind of look like really large, like pimples or something going up of her hand onto her left side. And then they're also kind of like by her breastbone. And this of course was done by whatever like alien technology the little guy has. So they're able to do something to her but just not quite enough. So maybe they didn't plan for such a big creature when they got out no, of the little tiny just, ship. It felt like radiation poisoning. <laughs> it's what it felt like, like radiation yeah. was hitting her. Right. And I thought that was very effective that they showed her show, like her, like realizing like, and it was like, you like, if you're, if you go back and watch the episode again, you see the lesions on her before she notices. And then, um, and then she notices, and then she goes over to, it's a separate pot of water that she washes her arm with. But if you're not paying attention, it looks like it's the potato soup. That's why I made the joke earlier. looks like I'm going to put some soup on my arm, you know, whatever. But it's like, she, she doesn't understand what's going on, but she's drawing the correlation between, um, you know, the invaders, there you go. And what's going on and that the, the Christmas lights are bad. And I thought that was a good like not only was that smart storytelling, it was effective directing. And, um, and I'll, I'll put this to you, Terry here. Like we've seen a lot of times where there's a sledgehammer to kill a fly. This doesn't, this whole episode doesn't assume the viewer is stupid. And I appreciate that. It's still modern storytelling to me that it gives you everything and it doesn't like overtell it where she's like, Oh, ow, ow, ow. I'm hurt. I have bumps now. Why is that laser lights? Like you get it. You don't need, you don't need dialogue to display that. Uh, and Agnes Moorhead sells it. And I thought that was wonderful. It's actually really good storytelling. And the fact that it's like, like if you know that the, the viewer is been going on this journey with her, they can make that association immediately. 
Because we've seen her making the soup and everything. Like, we had this little glimpse into her regular life, or simple life, as Rod said it, which is kind of... What are you doing, Rod? Don't judge her. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, like... You know, we maybe see the, this. Maybe but, this is her summer shack. Maybe she has like a winter shack somewhere else. You know, we don't know. Yeah, it's a yeah, shanty by the beach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She, she's a, a snowbird. You know, this is a, <laughs> this is she, where she hangs she out. She comes in north winter. to Ohio. Yeah. She comes north to Parma and then go, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, you know, we, we've been through this episode just a little bit to the point where it's like we understand may, like, she may have. She she was in good shape, you know, like the, she didn't have these things on her in the first place and already seeing like that there's a spaceship and they have alien technology. We have an understanding. So that's good storytelling. Nothing needed. Yeah. Um, and actually, at, to this point now, like the only the only criticisms I have is that there's a little bit too many like, ah, 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 hmm. you know, noises. So I'm like. What is going on in this episode? I really wanted some I wanna, dialogue. I want to make a soundboard now of just Terry noises. That's what I want to yeah, do now. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Start every episode just yeah, like that. I just want to be like, um, Terry should now be in Mortal Kombat. I need him to react to being uh, kicked in the gut and whatever. Anyway, um, I, well, I mean, it's a little confusing. overdone. It's a little overdone. You're right. And, but it's like, this is 61. Like, And it's like, so in terms of me saying it's smart storytelling, they could have probably pulled it back just a little bit, but it's like, uh, you're, you're, you're not wrong. I, I think they're kind of meeting in the middle of what an audience expectation is at that point. You know? So like you're, you're, you're correct. I think it could have been dialed down now. Um, I just think then that's like, you have somebody on the screen, they have to make a noise, right? You're paying them for what? And I, I, you know, and that criticism is, this is what I was feeling the, on the essential or the, the very first viewing when this, these are the things I was going through emotionally. I was like, all right, what's going on here? Like I, I, maybe some people that are listening right now have never seen this episode. You're probably feeling the same way. Things are going to pay off. We'll put it that way. So, but then all of a sudden while she's cleaning her wounds in her kitchen, she's hearing noises from the other room. And that's where in this music, this Jerry Goldsmith's music just starts slowly kicking in and already like emotionally, if you haven't been on edge already, these sequences that are leading up, get you in it immediately. I was actually like, I mean, this is from 61 dude. I was like totally invested at this point now, especially because of this music. I mean, masterful. Yeah, I I think this really helped me get into it, too, because once she goes out of the room and and grabs her, you know, long spoon or paddle or, or, you know, which is stir stick, whatever it's called. I think at that (laughs) point, I think we should also mention that there's the, the very smart move of her going back to the kitchen and seeing that one of the knives is gone. Like the sharp knife is gone, if I remember right. Doesn't that happen for, I think. I think she sees that happens that a little after this point, or do my little behind her? No, I just I, I think she notices that and then goes grabs the um, the soup shovel or whatever it is that she has. I think that's what happens, but I could yeah. be wrong. So Terry, correct us. Who's right? Well, it's a twenty-two minute episode, so I think it's very close <laughs> to the sequence, no matter what. <laughs> yes, We're, it's almost semantics at that point because eventually she is in the kitchen and she does see that again because of social or uh, visual cues that. 
there is a knife. It is gone now. What happened to it? So, and that, you know, like that's a, that's a big point in the story, but um, yeah, like, so she goes into the other room and as this music is ramped up, uh, she's searching around. She don't know where this thing is, but she can hear little footsteps and everything too. And as she investigates certain areas, we hear this violin. And that is, it is creepy, dude. I love it. Yeah, because it, it straddles that line of, like, the music starts to ramp up into a frantic pitch as she's, you know, digging away at whatever in, in various corners of the room. And then the music stops on the dime, and all you hear is the violin playing this, I don't know if it's a minor chord or a dissonant chord. I, I, I want to say minor. I don't know. But at any rate, it, it, it just, it plays a double stop where you hear two notes at the same time, and it hits that, and it, it it gives it almost that rustic feel. It's really sinister at the same time. You're you, you just you're like butt puckering scared. You're like, oh my god, what's going to happen to her? Um, I also want to point out too it's something that you guys may not have noticed because it's like it's not something we think about anymore. Uh, but at the time of '61, it's a it's a very big deal. And I was mentioning the longer shots when she's carrying the lantern around with her, like the candle, and she's going from room to room. How the light dims. And picks up with her walking around. That is, I, I did. Yeah, that's that's not the candle. Like, no, that that's the the like. Sorry, do, sorry, you go to add something. I have some trivia about that just to give you guys some enlightenment. Uh, pun intended. <laughs> no, I, I did notice that, but please continue with that. Okay. So, um, so George C. George C. Clemens, who's the director of photography, um, so he actually had to plan out. Uh, let's see here. How, how do I say here? Um, how do I say, how do I say I uh, had to carry a candle from room to room. So that's Agnes, Agnes, uh, with the candle supposedly owned the only light source. He, here's what he said. I would say that was a problem True, truly make it look right. You have to visualize where your shadows change lights. Clemens put lights all over the set with dimmer switches and dimmer boys to work them. I don't know how you're a dimmer boy, but whatever. Anyway, in that particular picture, I had to take over a couple of dimmers myself, uh, being able to know just what I wanted and the time then to make the moves. But I think I had about six dimmer boys, six lights, and all that had to be synchronized. One source would come up and the other would go out as she went from room to room. So think about that. That is amazing to me. Yeah, and I like that he actually was really intent on getting the amount of it right because I've seen older movies or TV shows where someone lights a candle and then all of a sudden the whole damn room's bright as yeah. like a, it's the middle of the day. And, and, and this was a little different. You could tell that it was to your point. It was definitely more thought out. Well, even the bit later when the candle gets snuffed out, like the whole room just goes dark. It's like, that yeah. is like, th like it's just something that it's done so well. It's like one of those like close up magic tricks that you don't think about it until you're like, until later when someone's like, did you realize that? That's what I want to hold this up because Hayes's camera movements and Clemens photography and Moorhead's like they went through like hours of rehearsal to get what she was doing. Um, and then they would shoot like five minutes of film. Like it is, it's amazing to me how much preparation went into what we see. And, and Terry says 22 minute episode, you're going to watch this and not think twice about it. But my God, like the forethought that went into this is amazing to me. And that's like, I'm going to keep coming back to that. So I'm stepping all over everything, but yes, I wanted to share that trivia. No, that, that's a great thing for production too. It's like they they did it almost like in a theater, a theater style where we, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of us have seen theater work in that. And we notice those kind of 
like big cues when we're watching the stage. But when you watch TV, when you watch film and that, I don't, these are things that are kind of lost in translation because you know they can make little production notes and uh, we'll, we'll cut that or we'll splice a scene here, whatever. This, these are seamless shots here. Like this is happening in real time for her as a character, as, as the woman in the scene. And these are done masterfully. I actually think they did a terrific job on that. And the, this is definitely something I noticed right from the get-go. And it definitely worked for the suspense, too. When there was no light, these things were going to probably exist in that little dark space. So she's looking all around her little shack here. She's digging under her bed with her giant spoon, trying to smack it around. Maybe it's under there. And each time that those sequences are happening, that's when that violin kind of amps up a little bit. And so it's it's like it had me on the edge of my seat every time. It's like, where are they going to be? Where are they at now? Yeah. And uh, I, Richard, what, what what is the most important scene here now? Like, is it is it her trying to find a thing or is it like like what made you really like jump? I, I think it. it I almost find that the scenes where the where the the spacemen aren't are, are some of the more important ones. At least they're some of the they're the ones that build the most tension because you like you just said she's he's crawling around trying to find it. You're not sure where she's where it's at. The franticness of her pace is matched with the music, and then you're like, oh my god, what's going to happen? Where, where is she going to find it? Is it going to jump from the ceiling? Where's it at? You don't know. And then even whenever she comes to the scene right after that, and I. I love this little part that she did, that Agnes Moorhead did. She she reaches in the one place that she hadn't looked yet, which is a room. She reaches for the door and she pulls back. Ugh, yeah. Because it's like she's like, oh, my God, I, I know it's in there. I have to open the door, but I don't want to. And then, then she slowly goes back to it again. And that just – I will rewatch this today – and just seeing that, I was like, "Oh man, that's ah, kind of creepy and awkward." And yet, it just it. Yeah, this is the third time I've watched it in the last few days, and even then, I'm I'm still squirming in my seat talking about it. Well, as as she's looking through the the room at the like right before that scene, though, um, there's a little trap door that opens up in the floor, and all of a sudden, one of the little dudes is sitting there holding the knife that was stolen. And slashes her on the ankle. Mm. And that just, dude, I was like, oh my God, this is terrific, man. <laughs> like, who knew that there was going to be another little door? Like, because they don't show that either. Like, that's another little good bit there. It's like, we don't know what the, the layout of this house is. So we don't know all the little crevices that these guys are hiding in. And when I saw that little trap door open up, I was like, oh my God, this is great, man. And then you. <laughs> See her just yeah. collapse on her bed in anguish because they got her on the ankle. It's like, oh, that's great. I love this. This is like true horror for me. Like these are one of this is always going to be remembered as like one of the most horrific episodes of the Twilight Zone. Yes. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you there. That's yeah. Yeah, once he slashes her with a knife, which I mean they don't show, but it's it's clear that's where he's aiming as soon as they see him waddle over towards her and, and then they go up to her or pan up to her uh, face and yeah, yeah. I just I just wonder if Fred Gwynn watched this episode during the production of the monsters and was like, huh, that's funny. <laughs> like 
<laughs> I'll feel like I'll be doing that in about. That'll, that'll never happen to me. Never. Yeah. So this is. It's at this moment that all of a sudden, like she's writhing around in pain on the bed, that one of the little dudes just kind of like hops on top of her. <laughs> I love this scene because you could totally tell that the dude was just like thrown onto her. Like <laughs> yeah, someone off screen was like pitched it on her. <laughs> like, ah, take like, this. Here you go. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, coming so in. She... <laughs> Hot potato. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so she throws the dude off, whatever. And now like you could tell she's pissed and she's like, that's it. I'm it's hatchet time. And she goes and she gets this big ass <laughs> hatchet and she's like, yeah, I'm going to take care of business now. And she, she goes around the house and she comes to the door that you were talking about when she reaches with that handle that all of a sudden she gets slashed on her hand yeah, through a little Ooh, crevice. Yeah. And it, it's, it's, it, it's this kind of stuff that I love because it's all like the show, but not show kind of thing. Cause we see the blood on the inside of her hand. And it's like, that's good enough. You know, like we don't need blood and guts and that we know that she was slashed on the ankle. We didn't see the wound. Right. Like it actually works out really well for the for the show. Yeah. And and I actually kind of like that's going on during this scene too because it it harkens back to her frantically looking for the little or for the spaceman to begin with, but it's also kind of a call and response between the violin and, and what I would think are Chalos playing that same little dissonant part that they were playing earlier. So in in it, it mirrors what's going on in on screen as well as the music that's being played. And I mean, like upon like other viewings for you, uh, Paul, like, like, is this like, is this suspenseful for you? Like, I know you've seen a lot of horror in the past and that, like, how did this sit for you? The, the all of this sequence here, like, did it sit in a very like dramatic way or were you like, ah, they're doing an okay job. It still works for me because I had forgotten about it. And I, it's terrible because I've seen this. I think this is like the fourth time I've seen this episode. I, not because that is any less effective. It's just that there's some big high notes in this episode that resonate more. I had forgotten about the foot slash and I'd forgotten about the hand slash, which still made me squirm. Cause anytime like there's, um, Oh, Terry, you can speak to this more than me. Um, it was, it was it Fulci that would like focus on like the small, the small horrors of people like the piercing of the eyeball, everything else that would happen uh, with like the Italian, like zombie movies where it's yeah, like, that's Fulci because yeah. I, I did honestly, as we're talking about this scene right now uh, with the door in it, that's immediately what I thought about with the eye piercing scene, mm-hmm. terrifying. And you almost need to get that close up in a sense, because how are you going to understand the anguish that this character is going through like, without seeing these somebody, dramatic close-ups? Like, stabbing the thigh is terrible, right? But if you give me a paper cut, I'm going to be curled up in the corner. Like, I just don't know. <laughs> like, there's that relatable, there's that relatable damage, right? Like, and her, and her reaching for the door, whatever it was, the, the, it's not a handle. It was like a, like a rod. And then it, her it's, hand yeah, sliced. it's a, like a little pull up handle. I've, I don't think I've ever been sliced across the palm of my hand, but I never want that to happen. And it's terrible. It, it's well, like, I immediately was like, ah, oh, damn, man. I was like, this woman can't catch a break, man. <laughs> like these little dudes are doing a number on her. And we don't even know. We didn't even find out that she's like six payments behind on her shack. She's about to lose this place too. That's not true. 
But like, there's a lot of compounding things going on, but no, she's under assault. And like the whole thing is like, even though there might be a size difference, like that can be, um, that can be the, the, the playing field can be leveled pretty quickly, which is what they're showing. And that was, that was just horrific seeing like the foot and the hand and her like knowing that they're still out there, but she's also getting hobbled. Like that, that is a very relatable human reaction. And, and, and how resourceful yeah. these things are too. Yeah. So I'm going to put this to you, Richard, like in terms of the script that you read, uh, was yes. that all in the, the shooting script for this? It is and actually. Um, and, and it doesn't necessarily happen right here. There's a few more beats that we'll talk about episode wise, but there's actually um, more scenes that go on at, at script wise that unfold with her, especially at this point, trying to go after the little space guys. Like, um, I, I can get into that later. It's okay. That's right. not necessary right now, but no, I, I just like, oh, it, it, yeah, sorry. Go sorry ahead. Go ahead. No, no, please, please go ahead. Uh, no, no, it's, it's just like once she gets into the room and, and starts, you know, and, and <laughs> after getting her hand cut and she goes in after him to, uh, try to find him and <laughs> has the, uh, axe raised to go ahead there's actually several other scenes that go on with like the bed catching on fire when she turns it over and whatever else so let's stick with the episode for now and i'll kind of get into that a little later okay. well because we end up getting like where she uh sees movement under the bed sheet right and then mm-hmm. that's when she like like she pulls it up and then she does the thing that we should all do where like she just starts wailing this bed sheet with the thing inside it and it's like kill Kreitz, just 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 wail the shit out of this bed sheet, right? But then we also have like the very scary moment of like what was did the knife come out first? I can't remember. Yeah, okay, it, can, so. it it so well, the knife no, punctures please, through, and so I think she pulls the knife out. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, but what happens before even all that is when she starts to wrap the one space dude up, the other one floats up to the window. And starts shooting at her, so that takes her mind off the other guy for a second, where she has to yes. close the slats of her window, and then she can grab the other dude and and beat the hell out of him against <laughs> against the table or whatever. Yeah, which is an amazing thing. It, it just it makes me think of um, oh, what was it? Was it Friday Thirteenth Part Five with the the sleep, sleeping bag where you just. <laughs> it also happens to Jason X where it's like, Oh, there's people in the sleeping bag. I would beat this against this tree. That's what it felt like to me. And it was amazing. And I love that. That was the appropriate action at this point too. Like she beats the hell out of this thing too. I was like, I probably would have kept on going because I don't even know. Like, what is the resilience of these things? Like are, do these little suits protect them? Like I just keep on going. Like maybe this is dead now, you know? But, you know, but it, it's like at this point now too, we still really don't understand how many of these little guys are around. Yeah. Like, yeah, maybe we've seen one in scene, maybe two kind of adjusted scene, but are, are these things like gremlins? Are they all over the place? Have they multiplied? Who knows? Like, <laughs> yeah, but that's whenever like she gets the one and then, um, that doesn't end up like tossing in the fireplace. I can't remember. Right. Like she's done with the one. Right. But the other one, uh, it starts to beat feet to go back up to the ship. Right. And that's where she, well, yeah, what, sorry, go what, ahead, please. Oh, okay. I was gonna say what happens is she, she takes the one that's in the, uh, 
in the blanket yeah. after she beats the hell out of it. Yeah. And she uh, tosses it into a box and then throws them on the fire, which um, this is where it, it really separates from the script for a minute. Uh, and almost um, a not surprising way, just because of was on like whenever the um, space guy starts stabbing through the blanket, what happens in the script is he actually stabs her again in the hand. He gets out at one point, jumps on her back, stabs her in the back. Ooh. And then, yeah, and there's even more fighting ensuing there. And she somehow manages to trap him in the box when he's trying to come out of the room. And, um, and then she she doesn't even beat him against the table or anything. She puts him in the box, closes the box, and throws it on the fire while he's still alive. Like, and and I, I quoted the line here. It says, Above looms the woman, looking down intently at the box as it flops around the fire, a faint shrilling sound, in, sound inside <laughs> it. The box hitches forward, and grabbing the fire poker, the woman jams it down against the lid, holding it fast in the fire, her eyes glittering fiercely. So, at this point, even though we've kind of gotten an idea from it on the episode proper, in the script, she is done effing about. <laughs> She's like, okay, I'm, that's it. You're, you're gone now. It's, I want... Oh. That's Basement dark, one. and I think they could have pulled that off here, but I still also think what happens is effective. But, wow, exactly, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. great. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I felt that was dark enough. I was like, okay, i got to put this in, at least make mention of it. Because <laughs> <laughs> that would have been cool to see, but 1961, eh, I don't know if they would have gone that far. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So, yeah, we're we're in the, 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 the tail end here, right, Terry? So uh, take us to the end. Take us to, uh, take us to the twist and everything else going on here. All right, so there's another little dude. He blasts a hole through the doorway after his buddy got burned on the fire. It's like a Tom and Jerry moment, but continue. Yeah. <laughs> so she, this is, I love this scene because I think that there's a little bit more to tell here about this character than any other scene in this entire episode. So she knows that the dude is on the other side of the hole and she sees the little flashlight of him kind of bobbing around on the outside. So she waits with her hatchet, kind of crouched down right by the hole, drooling. Yes. There's like this yes. profusive <laughs> drooling coming from her lip, like just like waiting like a hungry animal for this thing. Her hair's on, like totally wild now. She is an animal. Like she's built on survival at this moment. She doesn't care about what happens next. She just wants to survive. Yeah, and- I, I kind of like just a uh, just a tick before that part where the the spaceman does blow the hole in the door and she looks over and the sound that she makes there's a little bit of fear in there but there's also a little bit of a like what now are you kidding yeah. me mm-hmm. you get that palpable frustration and like okay that's it these things are done uh, I'm and th- which leads to the point that you just made like she's ready she's out for blood she is out to get it and. and and so, and so, like, so she, the, the character, the little creature does not come through, whatever it is. And she's like, all right, I'm going to chase this thing down. And she hears that it's gotten back up to the roof where the ship is. And so she goes back up there to chase this thing down. Like, she's hell bent on vengeance now, too. And 
She knows that it's back in the ship. She knows it's about to take off or something. I don't know. She she just knows that this thing is making noise. And she takes this hatchet and starts beating the shit out of it. <laughs> like just going to town on this little spaceship and is relentless on it. And then all of a sudden, we hear audio. We hear a voice coming from the ship. And it's it's speaking in English. It's a human. And it's talking about that they're well we we assume it's a human at this point but um it's talking about that don't don't send in reinforcements uh you know uh, who who's the other character i forget the name grisham oh, grisham. Uh, yeah, grisham 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 is, de- uh, grisham, grisham is dead grisham is cooked <laughs> yeah. there <laughs> there's yeah. a race of human or a race of giants here race of giants don't send reinforcements do not uh counterattack they are too much for us the mission is like the mission's failed. And she, upon hearing this, she's like, she's confused, but she's like, nah, I'm still going to beat the shit out of this thing. And still <laughs> just begins to crush this thing. Like, good honor. I would have done the same thing, but like, I don't care. You're still hostile. You're dead. <laughs> it just destroys this thing. And I love this. I love that she has this animalistic urge to just wipe out whatever this problem is. Like it does, it, she already had the, the situation of these things coming at her from all sides of her house and that she's not messing around now. Kill, <laughs> search and destroy. Yeah, no, it works. And it, like, and then when we find out it's the space force that have landed on this house, um, and then we hear like <laughs> space force, it's space force. It's what it is. Right. And then we find out it's like, Oh, cause there's like this like branding that you see. It's like the United States, like whatever it is. Right. Yeah. It says us, uh, air force space probe number one. Yeah. So space force. Mm-hmm. Right. So anyway, so we find out that's what happened and it's like, Oh shit, this is a giant. And then it's like, so then I just got to ask you guys. Is Rod Sterling a giant? Like, I'm just confused at the very beginning of this episode. Does he tower over all man? Anyway. Um, but no, I love I love this ending where it's like, there's this like desperate triumph of like, I've been assaulted. I don't know what's going on. Um, and I'm going to make sure that whatever, like this thing's not getting away because it's messed up my house and has attacked me. Like, um, I can't imagine, and this will get to our twist rating here in a minute. I can't imagine, like, I'm not saying that um, viewers in 61 weren't sophisticated, but like on a Friday night watching this and you get to this ending, I can't imagine there was a few people of just like, wait, what? Like, this would have been glorious to watch in real time for people not knowing what was about to happen. This is a really great ending. I, I did not expect this. I mean, I've seen so many different plot tests for, for, twists from different shows and different storylines. This is probably up there for one of the most surprising endings I've ever seen in a storyline. Like, I did not expect this at all. And, like, seeing the stills and all this stuff, you... I think that the pictures that are floating around there on the internet, unless you really deep dive they don't give you enough to really see like what's going to transpire in the ending. And that's great. Like the stills I had seen from this, I'm like, I had no idea. And I was like, dude, they did it. They did it 60 years later. They 60 surprised years me. ago. People yeah. 60 have, years. people have born and died. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like there's a generation that is now gone between this episode airing and you watching this. 
and the ending still works. That tells me that it works and it is resonant, right? Like mm-hmm. it's amazing. And this is one of the reasons why I love the Twilight Zone and I love Matheson because as much as he's frustrated at the 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 pudgy uh, you know space guys, <laughs> space dudes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> this is a great like switcheroo, and it it is like when people think of Twilight Zone, they think of this, and it's amazing. Yeah, this I love is. It. Yeah, the ending of this was just brilliant. Even whenever I first saw it, and I was kind of you know ambivalent to the whole episode, and then I got to the end, I'm like, oh wow, all right. Yeah. Every yeah. time I see an episode like this, it kind of redefines television for me. Like, I think that there is a lot of people that tell stories on TV that can look back to something like this. It's simple. It's it's direct in what its its approach is. Like we can still have storytelling like this and drop people's jaws. Like this was terrific, and I'm glad that we revisited this as a as a as a podcast together. Like we 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 looked at this, and I, I I'm holding this up as like kind of the that pedestal for the Twilight Zone. Like this is the these are one of the. This is one of the quintessential episodes of the series, honestly. It's like it's hard to describe how much this episode meant to me as a viewer. Yeah, and, and that's a really good point too. Something that you you guys have brought up in, in past episodes and that have been brought up in past seasons that you've watched or whatever, there's varying degrees of what is or even if there is a um a, a twilight zone yeah. twist, if you were. And this is the exemplary example uh, of that. It's like, if you're looking for a twist, look no further. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I feel like, um, because there's such highs in the series and this is definitely one of them. And I'm so mm. glad to revisit this because, uh, it's been what, three years since I've watched this. Um, and like I said, I admit, I, I forgot about, um, the, the leg slice and the hand slice. So those all hit me again. I'm like, Oh God, I forgot about that. Um, and it still yeah. makes me feel uncomfortable, you know, like, and that works. Right. I remember, like, I remember the bit about like the lighting and all the technical things, because I'm still enamored with that. Um, uh, spoilers. Um, and I know I told, uh, uh Richard and Terry about this. I'm, uh, I've been exploring a lot of Alfred Hitchcock recently and then watching, um, oh, watching rope. Uh, again, I think I, I think I've seen that previously, maybe not, but just seeing like how productions can go to go in like long takes of adjusting perspectives and people's emotions. This like Douglas Hayes and George T. Clemens deserve all the credit because not that like not that Matheson's story is not amazing because it is, but you could have told this very static and still have gotten the the, the punch of the ending. But there's this emotional journey that you go on with the main character. And I think that works. Um, I think that when people think of the Twilight Zone, they think of something like this. I'll be honest, too. Like, of the three books I use for my research, um, the one that I use, the Martin Graham's book, The Twilight Zone, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, there are three images on the book. So, Terry, you'll get a kick out of this. One is uh, the talkie Tina at the very top. Uh, the other one is um, uh, Jaws from James Bond, who is the Canimate. Um, what's his name? Um, I forget his first name right now. Uh, from uh, Richard. Uh, 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 all right, yeah. I, I think right. it's Richard something. Richard something. <laughs> he's from. Um, he's from. Um, oh, um, to serve man. Yeah, uh, and also Billy. Uh, sorry, not Billy Madison. Happy Gilmore. 
Uh, and then also uh, the very the very last image is Agnes Moorhead. Like they just shows where this is kind of rated. Like this is iconic. Like this is quintessential Twilight Zone of like, oh, you're sympathetic, but and you can still be sympathetic to Agnes Moorhead's character because there's a home invasion going on. But it's like, oh shit, it's man showing up and messing with her. Like it is, I don't know. Like this is a great rug pull. And I wanted to revisit it. And I'm, I'm so glad in a weird way, Terry, that you've never seen this before because um, like, it's always fun. It's always fun to bring these episodes to people that have never seen this before, where it's like, they might dismiss it because it's 60 years old and it's black and white or whatever, which I'm not saying that you do, but I don't know. The three of us know people that, um, they may not consider things within their purview because it existed before them. They may not consider that relevant. And I just always want to bring the twilight zone in certain episodes to be like, here, sit down, let it punch you in the face. You tell me if this doesn't work still, this does. And I'm so glad that we got a chance to talk about this again. I like, I guess I should probably bring in the twist, the twist rating to, to finish out the episode here, but I adore this episode. I adore the countercasting of Agnes Moorhead being like this known vocal performer. And as much as that, she um, grunts and groans a lot. Um, she's good. And also knowing that she approached this as a wounded animal also helps as well. I don't know. Like everything about this episode clicks for me, like the pudgy spaceman, whatever it is, what it is. It's 61. <laughs> like, what can, yeah. like, what can you do? Like, really? What can you do? Like, if you're going to bring me a physical prop on set for them to interact, that's fine. You know, like it's, it's fine. Like, but this is amazing storytelling. And this is why I always believe that you can tell a story in 22 minutes, um, and a to B right. And w- uh, Terry, you and I, when we've been watching um, the Jordan Peele produced Twilight Zone, we've we've dug it. There's times where it's like you overstayed your welcome. You could you could condense it down to 22 minutes and and think about it and make the right decisions. This shows that that's possible with big ideas, big execution, big endings. You just gotta think about it, and I, I adore it. I, I'm going on too long. I'm sorry. Please, guys, let let's round this out. Well, I think you put it perfectly, man. I think that this is the the perfect combination of knowing what to put on, on on the camera, knowing how to tell the story correctly, and also give substance to the story and not like lose anything while cutting certain things out. I know that Richard talked about certain scenes that were in the initial um, script and that. I can understand why they cut some of that down to, to get into that 22-minute um, framework. So, but you didn't lose anything. You didn't, you didn't get anything less from this character. And this is, this is good storytelling here. I mean, there's no way around it. They did a terrific job with this. And uh, yeah, I mean, what do you think about this, Richard? Like, how does this play for you late years later? Yeah. Oh, it, it's, it's amazing. And, and to your point it, that, that you just made, like, yeah, they, they, they it's really a- after reading the script and then watching the episode again, they took a tight script and made it an even tighter episode. So that's a win right there. And, um, and I really have to say, uh, I, I, on one hand, I really envy you for, for having seen this for the first time, Terry, but on the other, I'm really glad. And, and this is, you know, thanks for having me on for sure, guys. But it, this, this really makes me happy that I was able to revisit it 
and to really dig deep into it um, more so than I would have upon my initial viewing. And I'm glad it's just really, really changed my opinion of the this episode in particular. So, and it makes me want to go back to watch other episodes I know that I've seen, and not that I may have, like I said, may I don't want to say dismissed, but um, I think I'll be able to get more out of them now to a point that I made at the beginning of the episode where it's like, okay, now I kind of have a context of what I'm watching as far as time and the time that they were made and whatever else. So chubby spaceman aside, (laughs) what, what, but even still though, using that as, as physical on the spot props to have the actor, well, in this case, actress, actor one (laughs) single singular work off, as opposed to what you know would go on today, which would be lavish CGI bullshit. It's, yeah, I don't. I, don't, I mean, I, I, you can still. Do I, this I with, love it. I'm. I'm. Yeah. I'm. I'm a, I'm a, a bit of a luddite, a little sucker for uh, practical effects, as opposed to you know. Yeah. No, your, your, you your can still do this. Snyder cut ball, you could. Do- <laughs> You can still do this with practical effects and make this effective, right? Like exactly. Just, yeah. yeah. It's just, you don't have to cheat right in terms of that, but it's just, it is what it is. There were some limitations to the time and I appreciate yeah. that. Um, and yes. I'm glad it, I'm, it, you're, I'm sorry, your statement about like giving things a little bit of moment to breathe in context. I think that's what we all need to do with the twilight zone. Good and bad. Like yes. I, there's been some, there's been some, absolutely bad 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 black leather jackets bad 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 <laughs> hamner um even then there's still things to appreciate and um it's just i don't know like it's like you could binge something and be done with it right and but even coming back to this i'd i'd watch this episode like what two three times preparing for it originally when it happened in the order of the show Coming back again, it gave me a it, it gave me a, a better appreciation um, now because it, it like in a weird way at one having Sterling on set coming in to actually do the intro it just it was a breath of fresh air actually being involved mm-hmm. in the sequence that's the thing that dis- disappeared after season three um, having Buck Houghton be the producer I feel like they were in lockstep and I feel like. Um, I feel like Serling was always like you had mentioned before with his letter he wrote to Matheson, like like there. I think Matheson always reached in different directions that that Serling would not, and he realized that and was like let him go. Yes, and yeah. Oh, and, and 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 knowing that like Stephen King himself is like I'm nobody compared to Richard Matheson. Like Matheson's output is amazing, and I will admit that I'm very um, I'm I'm um. I've not dug into a lot of his work. Um, yeah, you you sit down and read Matheson, you will see you you will see where Stephen King came from. It, it's <laughs> right? just seriously, yeah, seriously. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Other, so. other than other than the occasional Elder God that you know he may have snagged from Lovecraft. Yeah. King, yeah, that's it's Matheson I mean, all day, all night. If it was Matheson that was having Elder God, like it was, it was like less racist. <laughs> then, then, um, yeah, yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe, right? All right, if so, he did, yeah, well, yeah. let's just say yes. <laughs> all right, um, so all but right, yeah, this let, let, yeah, sorry, quintessential. Ahead, oh no, no, to, to the point that both of you made, definitely. The, if you want to say Twilight Zone, what is the Twilight Zone? This might be one of the episodes you would put on first. Yeah, and it just. I just want to mention before you get the twist rating here. 
Um, think about this creative like decision, right? To have like a story that's told with little to no dialogue and like this. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Like this is, this is a creative, like this is a high wire act, right? We've never seen another episode that was like this ever in the entire well, run I, of the series. Yeah. And I was actually um, listening to an interview, which uh, the same one that I had listened to for uh, Terra 20,000 feet, um, where the interviewer asked Matheson, you know, what we you know, how he wrote the script or why he wrote it. And he said, it just, this was kind of something that he wanted to do. And he, he he intentionally wrote it like this, just all description, because he liked trying different formats. Like another format that he used on a separate show that was called The Lawman, it, the episode he did was called 30 Minutes. And he kind of pulled a 24 before 24 was a thing, the show, yeah. where his whole episode took place in time in 30 minutes. Hmm. I mean, that almost, that feels reminiscent of a uh, Nick of time, the season two episode or season one with Shatner where they're mm. at the, they're yeah. at the, the diner and they deal with the, the devil headed uh, fortune telling machine that Matheson wrote. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. Um, no, like, and yeah, that's fair. Like, I think he, I think he understood time and you know, yes. so yeah. Uh, but Matheson was always welcome. Uh, Terry, you and I are about to get, I think night call is written by Matheson. We're about to talk about that. Like, like soon, um, but we're about to end, we're about to hit the end of the road with Matheson in terms of his output for the Twilight Zone as we go forward in season five. So I'm glad that we got to get back to one of these. So Terry, you know, other thoughts before we get to the twist? Uh, just to, yeah, to kind of coincide what you guys are saying about Matheson. Um, I actually just finished, uh, what dreams may come today <sighs> and it was Ooh. terrific, man. And honestly, if anybody has the slightest bit of inkling to get into, some uh i don't know great storytelling check the dude out um i just did uh That's one of his book. teleplays yeah um today too i mean like i he he's touched a lot of the things that i enjoy as, as far as film um like terrific talent and um i think that people probably don't know the name but really should especially they should. if they, they they love like a lot of things tangentially at least storytelling it's going to probably touch one of those like subjects. Like so, horror, so many things sci-fi. people love. So many people things love have been touched by Matheson. They may not realize it. I, I'm, I'm cutting right. you off, but yeah, sorry, Richard, go ahead, please. Oh no, it, it's yeah, yeah. Terry's exactly right because just whether it was films or whatever that were based on books or stories of his, or even screenplays that he wrote. I mean, how how many things did he do with Roger Corman? The the old Poe films that nine times featured Vic, Vincent Price. Yeah. Well, even The Last yeah. Man on Earth uh, was Vincent Price, and that was based upon um, uh, oh, uh, I Am Legend. I Am Legend. Yeah. yeah, which was Matheson, yeah. right? So yeah. um, mm-hmm. I've, which I've was read... the inspiration for Night of Living Dead. Fair enough. And I also, yeah. I've, mm-hmm. if you want to talk, like, that book's great. I Am Legend's a great book. Oh, that it is fantastic. Yes. yes. Um, that's yeah. a great One day book. they'll get it right, but yes. <laughs> One day, uh, but what dreams may come is really good too. It's depressing as all get out, but yeah, it's good too. Matheson, yeah. I love that his writing's very approachable, but like it just very much like you talk about Proto King. Yes, that's where like he just he grounds in reality, and then shit gets weird, and I adore it. I love mm-hmm. Matheson. And then so outside of that, though, I will add the production note that I was mentioning earlier. 
Uh, it says here that when Agnes Moorhead was uh, had learned about no dialogue being in this episode, <laughs> she initially refused to do it. Yeah, Rod Serling and director Douglas Hayes had to convince her to do so. Yeah. So yeah, fair enough, right? Like you're like, hey, you're known for talking. How about no? How about- <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's what Matheson said in the interview too. He said the director came to him and said when Agnes Moorhead saw the script, she said, "Well, where's my part?" Yeah. <laughs> all right so yeah let's just uh just for sake of this episode and how we do it let's get to the twist i've seen this multiple times um just from i'm gonna put myself in the place of a viewer in 61 watching this i'm gonna get a five that it's like it was man all along which we've seen in previous episodes but this was definitely handled yeah. so i'm gonna I'm, so richard before we get to forget to terry richard we're gonna put this as a twist rating oh five for sure it, and actually i'm glad you brought it up you know it was it was all man all along i was actually gonna mention that earlier <laughs> because yeah this has been done multiple times no and you know uh, twilight zone but in other things and and seeing it done this way it's just yeah, yeah, fantastic. <laughs> five, five, four, show. Five. All right, Terry, where are you yep. at? So, if there was a way to give a five point something, I would, but you yeah, can. because it's of our, our show, scale, Terry, it is a show. five. It's our show. Like, five we, point something. Five <laughs> point something. If you want to give I a mean, five like, point one or a five point, you want to give it a 10.5, whatever. You, it's our show. We can do what we want. It's, it's fine. Yeah, yep. there it is. I'm going with five point something because, <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> it sounds good. Um, no, it's it, it floored me. I didn't expect it, and even this was kind of adapted later uh, on Trilogy of Terror. Yes, um, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, so, yes, yeah, yes, yes. So, so I I read I read the um, the short story Called today Pray. as well. Pray. Yeah. Um, even with seeing all that, I did not attach this story to that story at all. Like I didn't feel like it was the same at all in any sort of way. I was totally enveloped in watching this that later on after like thinking upon like what I had just watched, I was like, huh, that was kind of like trilogy of terror with the, the Zuni doll yes. and finding out later that Richard Matheson wrote both of them. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. Full so, circle. Yeah, I, I got to mention, I got to yeah. throw a shout out, shout out here. So, um, what was it last, last a year, a year or two ago, maybe, uh, on invasion of the podcast, the other show that I do with, uh, the, the super sexy and amazing Steve, um, we did, um, we, we did a anthology month and we covered trilogy of terror. So if you guys want to listen to that episode and us talking about prey and Karen black fighting a Zuni doll and also having a bag with a knife stuck out of it, that's also problematic, not problematic as in it just hurts to watch. Um, that was a fun made for TV movie. And all three of the stories were Richard Matheson. So please go listen to that episode. I feel like I'm robbing Terry of that discussion, but that was, that was a good talk. And, um, and Steve's a delightful individual. So please go check that out as well. I'm glad I was able to get the other half of it though. Like talking about this story and having it be a part of the twilight zone universe. Mm -hmm. Like we got a little bit of both. Like I got this. Steve got the other half. I mean, the Zuni doll was a little pudgy, but Richard Matheson doesn't talk about it. And that's not true. (laughs) (laughs) He's very angry. You can find that short story too. The short story is a lot of fun as well. Uh, Very like they do a very good job of adapting it to uh, to screen for a trilogy of terror. 
Night. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a lot of fun. So, all right, uh, that's our twist reading. Um, let's get into how people can find us. You you can find us on uh, Facebook. It's uh, Strange Highways on Facebook. You can email us directly at Strange Highways uh, Podcast Gmail dot com. Uh, and Terry, how can people find us otherwise? Uh, we're on Instagram nowadays. Uh, posting a lot of fun stuff on there. I've been posting like a madman lately. People probably hate my guts for that follow me right now. <laughs> and uh, it, you know, like. Like Paul says every time, please go to where you get your podcast. Please review us. Even if it's a bad review, it might give us that that little boost to get a little bit better. I don't and, like this podcast. They don't talk about Hitler enough or whatever it is. That I, they do. It, it'll be like, and if you can't, if you can't do a rating on the, your service, go to a different service and rate us on there. Go to Apple podcast or, or go to audible. We're on audible now. I'm like, audible? really? We, okay. yeah, yeah, we're on audible today. I, I looked it up today. We are on audible. So nice. go on, go on there. That? If you like us, us and Bob, rate us on there. that's amazing. All right. And Richard, how can people find you in the things that you do and all 43 of your stories that you have available? Yeah. No, <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, one question. Are we, are we doing trivia on the episode? Are we just yes. kind of no, talking no, no. about it all? No, or? You, you can do whatever you want. It's, it's, it's our okay. podcast. Please give us some trivia. Um, no, no, really. I think I talked about it all. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> so, no. I thought I did. No. no. Oh, no. Uh, Prey. The only thing I got about Prey was it was published after this episode came out, mm-hmm. but depending on what interview you read or talk about Richard Matheson isn't quite sure whether he approached the a story as what became prey first and they didn't care if they meaning the um, Twilight Zone yeah, Buckhouse or whomever yeah, didn't uh, quite like it that way and they yeah. they said ah oh, if I did I may have changed it to science fiction and then wrote prey later or he, he wasn't quite sure if he even never even wrote it and just <laughs> waited till after the fact and then wrote it as a book. So yeah, no, I enjoyed that. Like much later, it was right before the, right before he passed away. There was that film real steel that came out with a uh, Hugh Jackman with the fighting robots and, yes. and Hollywood was like, Oh shit, that sounds like the episode steel of the twilight zone with the fighting robots. And they, they like, they reached out the maths and he's like, I took a check. Like the screenplay had nothing to do with what I was doing, but it was like, <laughs> sure. So like for someone that yeah. was like, maybe pay me, that's fine. I can appreciate that. Yeah. That, 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 he was that uh, kind of guy. Real straight shooter. <laughs> <laughs> so I took the money. Okay. Yeah. Whatever. Pay me. It's fine. Right. Yeah. So people can find okay. you with your, um, Oh yes. Your, people can yeah. find me at, um, at the old Facebook, uh, Richard Staving writes, Twitter handle Richard Staving. Same with Instagram, Richard Staving. And um, if you want to get silly and uh, look up my base stuff, you can find me at uh, RHS Base on Instagram. There you go. Uh, find him, support him. Uh, uh, Richard's a great friend and uh, a great creative output, whether he would uh, acknowledge that or not. Um, more to come, right? So, uh, yeah. yeah. Still waiting on someone to read that novella I may have done. <laughs> I'm, I'm not God not it. saying. But God damn it, Terry! Saying. Why don't you read his work? I mean, it's me. It's, a, it's not me. not okay. calling out, but you know, if, if you're waiting, if, if, if I was on a phone right now, I'd say, "Hey, Paul, I'm calling." If you your out. publication is resting on me to make a thumbs up, thumbs down, you need to revisit your story. I'm just going to throw that out I'm, there. I might have to. <laughs> all right. So, all right. So that so next next episode is that we're actually we're taking a week off. 
I got to admit that because I am a wuss and I'm getting ready to go on another podcast. I'm sorry, Terry. I'm cheating on you for a minute. And um, I'll be taking over the show. So that's fair. If you guys want, if you guys want to record something next week, that's completely fine. On uh, Richard um, the Strange Highway, Staving. <laughs> that, that is I'm just sorry. the natural progression. Terry's going to take it from me and 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 cheat on me with another person. That's fine. Yes. Um, Terry and I will be talking about heavy metal. And, uh, <laughs> not not the movie, but actual movie. heavy metal. Yes. Just <laughs> in general, metal. I get it. So uh, we're taking a week off. So I um, I'm I'm going to be on uh, the Talk Without Rhythm podcast. In April, uh, we're getting some Hitchcock, uh, and uh, I just need a week to kind of get my shit together with that because it's going to be a lot to get into. So Terry's been gracious. We're taking a week off. But after that, um, we're going to get right back into Season 5 of The Twilight Zone. We're going to get into the next episode called Night Call, uh, and then we're, it's going to be... Um, it's going to be a, uh, not a marathon, it's going to be a short run to the end of the season. So I hope you guys join us for that. Hope you enjoyed this conversation about a revisit of the invaders. Um, this was a lot of fun. This was like way more fun than that. That makes it sound like we were going to get it. I'd be like, I was going to be bored, but this was a delight. Thank you guys for talking about this. Thank you, Rich, for coming on. Oh, no um, problem. Thank you for having me on again, please. Anytime you want me on, I will come on. Yeah, somehow we stretched 22 minutes in the two hours. That's my fault. I apologize. Uh, but whatever. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, have a good week. Have a safe week. And um, if uh, like pierogi shaped guys show up, just, I don't know, throw them in the fire. Maybe they'll be del- delicious later. I got nothing. Keep better track of your sharp knives. I'm waiting for the uh, hammer cut of this episode. <laughs>